I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. By my accounting, this is the uh, seventh time we've opened up the book of Acts, and already we've made it into chapter 2. So, blazing pace as we move uh, through this book. Uh, while you're turning there, let me just mention a couple of things. Um, uh, this is uh, my first time back in a number of weeks. The first time I wasn't here was down at Campsite Ministries, uh, serving with uh, Elmer Scherzer and Chris Kendig. Uh, the men who go and, and uh, speak there have a tremendous privilege of being able to serve uh, with Elmer and Chris in that uh, great ministry. And uh, I had that privilege, and I took my family with me, and uh, it was a good Sunday for us. The last couple weeks, um, I was on uh, official vacation. We visited congregations in the area. If we're in town, that's usually what we do. Uh, we went in particular to uh, Crossway Church over on uh, Barber Street. Uh, they could not have been kinder to us. Um, huh. It's always a great disappointment, I think, when we walk in and the uh, volunteers who don't know who we are welcome us. Oh, there's a new family at church today. Great. I always say, we're never coming back. So, you know, <laughs> don't. Uh, but they uh, really are uh, quite kind uh, to us. Um, after uh, we, went, we went to another church as well, I asked my children um, after we visited, well, what did you think? And uh, my girl said, the music was too loud. And I thought, I'm raising a bunch of old fundamentalists. <laughs> Actually, then, as I probed them to find out what we were talking about, I discovered that their concern was they couldn't hear anybody else in the church singing. Uh, that made me. That criticism made me very happy to hear, because that's uh, one of our great values in our church, isn't it? That we uh, and our worship leaders are committed to this. That we are a congregation that sings, and we want to sing and hear one another. Our building was built for it, right? The ceilings are low enough; our sounds bounce back to us, uh, and uh, it's um, well. It's good to be back and uh, sing with you this morning. Now, we're moving methodically here through uh, the book of Acts, uh, and uh, this is a book that tells us the story of the beginning of the church, and because it's so central to the beginning of the church, we're looking at this book because uh, it establishes for us our aspirations. This book helps us see what sort of values and priorities we're supposed to have. It, it, it tells us what we're supposed to strategize about. It tells us about how healthy we are or not as a congregation, and it helps us uh, uncover those areas where we really need to grow. That's what Acts does. And Acts 2, I think, as we turn to it, is one of the most important books in this, uh, one of the most chapter, important chapters, rather, in this book. It tells us about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come. The disciples here were waiting in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And this is the, the time that the Spirit comes. And the Spirit has come to help the, these early followers of Jesus and us too uh, fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us. Now one way to understand, I think, how important Acts chapter 2 is, is to think about how the Bible would be different if the chapter 2 were not here. What would Christianity be like if the Holy Spirit had not come? Now, if you like to follow uh, some of the political uh, debates and discussions and worldview discussions that, that take place in our world, you might recognize the name Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza is a native of India, came to the United States when he was a, um, 
a high school student in an exchange program and has remained and is involved uh, quite a bit in some of the worldview discussions. Dinesh D'Souza is a controversial figure. He, he wrote a fine book defending uh, Christianity, uh, religion, Christianity in particular, against some of the atheists. He also uh, was recently indicted for campaign fraud, finance fraud. So he has a mixed uh, record, Dinesh D'Souza does. Well, uh, this weekend, uh, D- Dinesh D'Souza released a documentary called America, Imagine the World Without Her. Now, he released this documentary in response to some uh, thinkers in our uh, country who argue that the United States is responsible for much of the racial and economic and uh, um, environmental instability in the world. They argue, in essence, that the world would be better without the United States. And Dinesh D'Souza argues in this documentary that the world would, in fact, be much worse without the United States. America, imagine the world without her. Well, I'd like to borrow that title, paraphrase it for a minute. Let's uh, use this title. The Holy Spirit, imagine the church without him. Uh, John Stott helps us a little bit with that. In his commentary on Acts, he writes this about Acts 2. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. This is a chapter that's open before us, this crucial chapter, and there's three sections in Acts chapter 2. In verses 1 through 13, there's the narrative account of the spirit coming. Here's the story of the spirit coming. And then in verses 14 through 47, Peter stands and he preaches a great sermon explaining what the coming of the spirit means. And then in verses 42 to 47, there is the binding of the church together, the unity of this body of believers. These three things, we see them all the way through the book of Acts. The Spirit has come. Christ has given us the Spirit. And as a result of the presence of the Spirit, the church is active in witnessing about Him and testifying about Him. And we see in the book of Acts the persecution and the challenges and the testing that comes as they fulfill this mission. The other thing we see, though, because the Spirit has come, is the church uniting with one another. Both of these things happen. They reach out because of the Spirit and they reach toward one another, being united together. Actually, as we move through the book of Acts, again, we're going to see these themes over and over as, as we talk about how can we more successfully, how can we more effectively, fruitfully be involved in fulfilling this mission that Jesus has given us. And I want to build a little bit on some of the things that Pastor Scott's been teaching the last three weeks about our union with one another. Our love for one another is one of the evidences of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Acts teaches us about that too. Today what I want to do, we're going to spend about a month or so in this uh, chapter. I want to look at the first 13 verses of uh, this, this, this book, the narrative account of this coming of the Spirit. So let's read Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. Uh, you follow along in your Bibles as, as we look. Uh, this is what Luke writes. The Word of God says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Well, this is a a fundamental, foundational uh, passage. And what I want you to see this morning is I want to show you four truths, uh, four very basic truths that are in this passage. This, again, this passage is as important in the book of Acts as the birth of Jesus is in Luke. Luke sets both of those things up in the same way, the birth of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. And it tells us some foundational things about what it means to follow Christ. In fact, you can't... uh, You can't consider following with Jesus Christ. You can't take Christianity seriously without wrestling with what this chapter says about following Him. So four things that I want you to see. Number one here about Christianity. Christianity is supernatural. Christianity is supernatural. Now, this is an odd place to begin. It's an unusual place to begin. We have been thinking together and singing about the supernatural nature of our faith all morning long. This is not a newsflash. It should not be a newsflash to you that we believe that our faith is supernatural. Uh, We sang, didn't we, just a minute ago about the miracle of how the holy God became a perfect man. We declared the Lord's death and resurrection uh, by taking of these elements. We prayed to Him because we believe that He hears and answers us. Christianity is supernatural. We really believe it. We really believe that the world was created by the one true God and as part of His creation, as an expression of His providential care, He uh, rules the world through predictable and measurable laws. You could call those scientific laws. We believe in science. We love science. Science gives us MRIs and vaccines and all kinds of wonderful things. We believe in the laws of science, but we actually worship the legislator. It's hard to have laws without a legislator. We worship the legislator. But we also believe that this God interacts with His creation, and He can do so in surprising, unexpected, miraculous ways. Almost all religions believe in the miraculous and the supernatural, and we are told that our belief in the supernatural contradicts what science teaches us. Science, we are told this over and over again, the pure art of science uh, uh, disproves the supernatural. Think with me, though, for a minute about what happens here in this text. Let's look at what what happens 
in the supernatural signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit. First, there's a sound like wind. A sound like wind. The text says that this is a sound like wind. I don't think that a breeze filled the house, but there was a sound like a violent rushing wind. Now, if we read this in light of other images of the Bible, I think this wind is supposed to symbolize for us God's powerful presence. God is powerfully present. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in a vision is taken out into a field in chapter 37, and he sees this field is covered with bones. And, and God commands the prophet to prophesy to the wind, to command the wind to blow. So God says to Ezekiel, tell the wind to blow. And Ezekiel says, wind, blow. And the, blow, the wind blows over the bones, and the bones come to life. And, and Ezekiel says, the wind is the Spirit of God who gives life. Jesus built this on this in John chapter 3. He's speaking with Nicodemus. He says, you see what the wind does. You see how it moves the leaves around. That's like the Spirit of God, what the Spirit of God does. So the wind here, the symbol of, of, of God's uh, powerful presence. Then there's the sight of fire. They see fire. And again, in the Hebrew Scriptures, when God shows up, fire is often present. Think of the burning bush. God's presence. Now the third supernatural sign is speaking in tongues. So there's the sound of the wind, the sight of the fire, and then they speak in tongues. Verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, this speaking in tongues is a divisive issue in the church. Now, if you're new to the book of Acts and you're unfamiliar with all of the debates around what's going on here and how this expresses itself today in the church, if you're unfamiliar with all those uh, debates, then blessings be upon you. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, after we move through all of Acts chapter 2, I want to get through the, the whole chapter so we can look at the chapter in and of itself. After we finish Acts chapter 2, before we move on to chapter 3, Lord willing, I'm going to take a week or two and we're going to talk about tongues and miracles in the book of Acts. So we're going to talk more specifically about what's happening here and uh, what it means and, and how uh, we think about this practice uh, today. That will come in a little bit. That's coming. Don't miss what's here, though. This is a miracle. These followers of Jesus Christ are speaking languages that they do not know and they have not studied. I wish I knew more what this was like. It's interesting. Um, in this book, in this section, Luke spends more time, more space, listing regions of people who heard this in verses 9, 10, and 11 he spends more time doing that, more space, than he does giving space to what this was like for them to speak in tongues or how they experienced this. Isn't that interesting? Oh, I have questions. Did the, the disciples know what they were saying? Were they trying to speak in Aramaic and they thought they were their native tongue and they thought they were speaking in Aramaic but something else was, was coming out? To what extent did they have control over what was happening? Um, was one of them speaking in, I don't know, pick one of these languages, Cappadocian? Was, was somebody speaking in Cappadocian and another person said, hey, wait, listen to me, and he started speaking in uh, Pamphylian? Is that, is that how that worked? 
Were they all doing at once, or were they taking turns speaking in these different languages? I, I don't know. The text doesn't say. I wish we, we knew more of these details. But it affirms here for us that when the Holy Spirit comes, miracles happen. If we are all at in tune with the Holy Spirit, we are connected to the supernatural. Now, if you struggle with that, you should recognize that you're not alone in, in wondering about these miracles that are claimed in the book of Acts. In fact, um, you, you're not alone in that, that the original witnesses were wondering what was going on. Look at uh, verse 6. It tells us about the people who heard this. Verse 6, they were bewildered. Verse 7, they were utterly amazed. Verse 12, they were amazed and they were perplexed. This reminds me a little bit of um, the disciples' reaction when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection in Matthew 28, verse 17. It's listed there for you. Look what it says. When they saw him, they rejoiced, but some doubted. It's a remarkable statement. You don't have to be... We sometimes have this impression. Well, huh. We are 21st century educated scientific people. So we know better than the naive, pre-modern, gullible, religious, superstitious people in the Bible. We know better. We know to be skeptical of miracles. Did you notice that even these, they were wondering... They had serious questions about this. What's going on? What is happening? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this reminder about the supernatural reality of our faith, it should encourage you. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the the work He has done in these believers reminds us that we're not alone in doing what the Bible calls us to do. I wonder if over the last few weeks you have been intimidated a little bit as Pastor Scott's been talking about our responsibility to one another. That word admonish, he used the word admonish. Who uses the word admonish? Huh. Admonishing one another, is that's a weighty word. Burden bearing, that can be burdensome. But look what Colossians 3.16 says. I'm sure you noticed this when you were looking at Colossians 3. Look at this verse. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish, there's that word, one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Oh, thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom and the help to admonish one another. He enables it. He empowers it. Or, or think about this task that is before us as, as a congregation. We, we, we join, we, we are in league with our like-minded fellow congregations in this goal of witnessing about Jesus Christ. How are you going to do that? I wonder how well you represent Christ where you work. What do the guys on your crew think about your relationship with Jesus Christ? What do the other people in your office think uh, because of, about Jesus because you're there? I wonder how, how afraid you are to, to talk to them. What if they ask you questions you can't answer? Or what if someone makes fun of you? Or what if someone remembers how you blew it a week ago and calls you out for being a hypocrite? What do you do if you've been at your job for 14 years and you haven't really said much about Jesus 
of the 14 years you've been there, like they know that you go to church at Christmas and Easter. You don't call it Resurrection Sunday. That's just goofy. But they know you go to your church on Easter. Um, and now you're supposed to go in and say, hey, <laughs> let me tell you about the most important person in my life. His name is Jesus. And they look at you and say, ha, I've known you for 14 years. Now all of a sudden, you're going to tell me about this? I thought we were friends. feels strange. But this is work that is empowered by the Spirit. He empowers you. He works in you. And, good news, He works in them too. You have an inside man, oh, an inside God at work in them as, as you speak. Uh, the church lawn right now, we, we have a volunteer crew. Our church lawn has been mowed by volunteers a, a lot. But we have a a big crew now volunteering to mow the church lawn. We have a wonderful new zero-turn mower. Uh, we still own, if some of you are wondering about this, the church still owns the Farmall tractor, that big old early 1950s Farmall tractor. We, uh, some, some of the volunteers are using the Farmall, nostalgia's sake, or they like the fumes that come out of it. I'm not sure, but anyway, um, some of them are still using it. We used to use it every week, and one time, several years ago, um, Ed McLaughlin was mowing the church lawn with the Farmall, and it just totally quit in the field, absolutely quit. Well, he called me, and, and we were looking at it, and... <laughs> Well, I don't know anything about mechanics, right? Ed grew up in the city, so there we were, just lost at this tractor. Well, we got out the crank, right? Can't get it started, let's try the crank. That was a no-go. So we couldn't get it moving at all, and uh, so we decided we were going to put it away. So I said, Ed, you get up and steer, I'll push. <laughs> so I got behind the farm all track. There's a slight incline to the church lawn. So I got behind and, and leaned into it and pushed. And it, I mean, not at all. It didn't move. It didn't sway. Ed felt no breeze. There was no motion <laughs> as I was trying to push. If the tractor had been alive, the tractor would have turned around and said, what are you trying, fool? So uh, Ed got off the tractor and said, I'll help you. Okay? We, I think we got it to move a little bit. But it, it was an impossible task. Brothers and sisters, obeying the Bible without the aid of the Holy Spirit is like pushing a farmall tractor uphill by yourself. This is not the way God intends us to obey the commands that He gives. He gives us commands to obey and He helps us. He gives us the engine of the Holy Spirit that carries us along. Christianity is supernatural. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, this emphasis on the supernatural, this, I really think, could turbocharge your inner skeptic, right? Science tells us that miracles don't happen. It's an axiom that science, uh, that, that behind every phenomenon, there must be some sort of natural phenomenon. This is naturalism. It is outside of the possibility of nature for there to be something within nature. It's supposed to be axiomatic about science, Right? The problem with that is, though, that naturalism can never make a determination about whether something supernatural exists. Alvin Plantig is a Christian philosopher, and he refers to an old joke when he's, when he's thinking about this issue. He, he, he uh, reminds us about the man who was standing under a streetlight one day, actually on his knees at, at midnight, looking for something. A friend walked along and said, hey, hey, what are you doing? I dropped my keys and I'm looking for them. Oh, did you drop them here? 
Well, no, I dropped them over there under my car. Well, why are you looking here? Well, the light is better here. I can see more. <laughs> there is, huh, within the, the light that naturalism can provide, there's, there's certain boundaries, there's certain barriers. You can't really describe and think well about what's outside of the, the light that's cast by its own axioms. Uh, science, for all its benefits and all of its strengths, describes an awful lot with its light, but it can't definitively address what, what's outside. <coughs> See, this emphasis on the miracles, uh, it, should, it should challenge you. Miracles in the Bible are not just, though, about winning their mind. They're actually about pressing themselves on your heart. Jesus is the great miracle worker of the Bible. And what does he do? Jesus does not do stage tricks. Jesus does not pull doves out of his sleeves. He doesn't do miraculous things with cards. When Jesus comes to do miracles, he gives blind people their sight. He cleans the skin of diseased people. He, he helps lame people to walk. He gives a dead son back to his widowed mother. Jesus comes and he renews and he refreshes and he restores. That's who he is. That's what he does with his miraculous power. Oh, we, we worship him. Christianity is supernatural. Now, here's the second truth in this passage. We'll need to move a little bit quicker here. Christianity is personal. Christianity is personal. You should notice in these verses that I read, verses 1 through 13, how often Luke uses the word all or the phrase each one. The Spirit as He comes manifests Himself on tongues of fire that rest on them all, on each of them. And then later, these witnesses, each of them, all of them, hear the wonders of God in their own language. The Spirit is not just for apostles. It's not, he is not just for the leaders. He is distributed to them all, to each person. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been baptized into the Spirit. If you're trusting in Him, He is in you. Now, the challenge that this presents to us is that everyone who is a follower of Christ then should have the evidence of his presence in your life in some way. It's a major topic of the New Testament. There are chapters and chapters in the New Testament written about this. But let me just mention four elements that seem to rise to the top. Evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. First of all, if the Spirit is at work in your life, you should have a growing understanding of the Bible. A growing understanding of the Bible. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will remind you of everything I've said. He will be your teacher. Secondly, the Spirit produces in us Christ-like character. That's what Galatians 5 says. The fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is evident in your life, present in your life, you will find yourself growing in love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control. Now, related to that, in number three, there's progress in personal holiness. Romans 8 says that the Spirit of God enables us to put sin to death. And finally here, there's effective service to others. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 about gifts of the Spirit, how the Spirit gifts us to serve others. Uh, maybe that's related here to number three, truth number three in this passage. Christianity focuses on missions. 
Christianity focuses on missions. Why is one of the signs of the Spirit's presence in this passage here speaking in foreign languages? Why is that the sign? I think that this is the indication that God is going to equip and empower His people to be witnesses all over the world. He's going to equip them to speak His wonders in all of these places, just as He commanded them to do. So they say, huh, we're Galileans. How are we going to go to Rome? How are we going to go to Arabia? How are we going to go to Crete? How are we going to go to Parthia? How are we going to go to all these places? You know, the Spirit comes, oh, don't worry. I'll give you everything you need to go. You'll be fully equipped. This, this actually appears to be a moment in the Bible when the Tower of Babel is undone. Remember that story in the book of Genesis? In, in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, um, God deals, it seems, in, in large measure with the whole world. Um, there's rebellion, which he suppresses with the flood. And then in Genesis chapter 11, there's another rebellion. The people get together and they say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build ourselves a tower that stretches into heaven. We'll, we'll be famous. We'll be united. And everything will be great for us if we build this stupendous tower. They were trying, in essence, to create the world without God. Wanted everything that God had created the world to be without Him. We'll make a name for ourselves, they said. The text says that God <laughs> came down to look at their tiny little tower and, and He confused their languages. It's a tragic story. It's a story of human pride and divine judgment. It's a story, though, that if we read it carefully enough, is our story too. We human beings are naturally committed to making our own destiny. We want to be our own authority. We want to build our own lives. We want to have our own name. Think about your, just your expectations for today. Do you have in your mind what you want to happen today to make today be a good day for you? You want to read the paper. You want to take a nap. You want to enjoy the beautiful sunshine. You have certain criteria of what today needs to look like in order for you to have a good day. And, and some of you, depending on your commitment to this, it better happen or I'm going to be happy and everybody around me is going to be unhappy too. Many of our, our, our congregation, they're leaving to go on a mission trip. They're going to serve all week. I bet even, isn't there a corner of your, your heart that's a little bit like, well, I better get good accommodations to sleep in and the pool better be warm enough and it, it, it better, the food better be okay. We, we have this commitment. I'm going to make my own destiny. I'm going to satisfy myself. I have plans. They better come to fulfillment. Things that are going to make me happy. And the Bible calls this obstinate commitment to yourself. It calls it sin. Rebellion against God. And because God is the rightful ruler of the universe, and because He's good, He punishes all rebellion. That judgment is coming. It's what... Peter is going to proclaim in Acts chapter 2 when we get to the rest of it. He's going to talk about how the Lord Jesus is coming to judge. When I was in third or fourth grade, I had, was waiting outside of school. My mom was a kindergarten teacher, and I was playing on the playground out back, waiting for her to finish the meetings so that she could give me a ride home. 
And I had a rubber bouncing ball, bounce ball in my, my hand. I don't know where I got it, but I had this ball. And um, a friend of mine and I decided we would have fun by bouncing it off the building and catching it. So we found a large brick expanse of the building and started throwing it against the brick and catching it. It was fine. Then we decided we'd, we would make it a little bit more fun if we could try to hit specific things on the building. The first thing that we chose was a security light. It, looked, it was about this big, and it was flat against the building, plastic. It was fine. Um, so I, I threw it, and it bounced off. That was great. But the truth of the matter is I'm about as good as throwing as I am at mechanics. And this security light happened to be above a pane of windows over one of the doors. My second throw, I threw it right through one of the windows. So, um, well, I went into the school to get my ball. That was the first thing that I did. (laughs) Then the next thing that I did, because I knew I was in trouble, I went to my mom's room, classroom. She was in a meeting. I don't know where she was. I I sat in her room waiting for her to come back from this meeting that to me felt like it was an eternity long because I was a window breaker and I was waiting for the judge to come. (laughs) Judgment. We are, we are waiting, Peter says. We will have to do with the Lord Jesus, the judge of all the earth who is returning. Now, after, after this judgment in Genesis 11, right? Do you remember in, in Genesis? God seems to change tactics a little bit. And he, he seems to, he chooses one man and one family. And he's going to work through this one man in Genesis 12, Abraham and his descendants. And his greatest son, Abraham's greatest son, is the Lord Jesus. And unlike in the Tower of Babel where human beings tried to build a tower to get to God, God in the Lord Jesus came to us. He lived a perfect life and then He died on the cross for our sins. And through Christ, God offers reconciliation to all who turn to Him and trust in Him. Babel, all these languages, all the sound of the languages in the Tower of Babel was a sign of God's judgment. Now on the day of Pentecost, all these languages, all the sign of them is the announcement from God that reconciliation through Jesus Christ is possible. And, And the church is speaking all these languages and calling all people to come. Do you realize that that today the church of Jesus Christ is still speaking all these languages? Isn't it beautiful? Today, around the world, followers of Jesus Christ will worship Him in English and in French and in Spanish and in Mandarin and Russian and Swahili and Arabic. This is the beginning. God's church has not stopped being multi-ethnic and multilingual since this day. Christianity is focused on missions. This is our focus. And, and how are you involved in that? Many of you are involved in, in tremendous generosity network. This great opportunity we have to, to give to our outreach partners that are serving around the world. There's one more truth in this passage. I should just mention it here and then finish. Christianity calls for a response. Christianity calls for a response. I'm intrigued here by verse 13, what happens. Some, however, made fun of them and said, oh, they're just drunk. They've had too much wine. There were people in this crowd unwilling to accept this miracle for what it was. They rejected it. And the same may happen to you. 
Dave Rhodes gave me an article this week. Uh, John MacArthur wrote it several weeks ago. And um, the article was about how we're under the impression that if we just talk about Jesus the right way, that if we just use the right words, and if we have the right sort of relationship with people, that if we talk about Jesus just at the right time and in the right way, people will accept Him, and they'll accept us, and they won't mock us, and they won't reject us. But brothers and sisters here, this is as pure a miracle as possible. These, these Galileans are as uninvolved in what's happening as possible. I mean, they're obedient, they, they followed Christ, but uh, they're, they, they're strangers speaking miraculously, and still they're mocked. People will respond to Jesus, not always in the way you want. Don't let that stop you from speaking. Now, I'm, I'm sure I've used this illustration before, but I'm, I'm going to mention it again. Kathy and I moved to Lancaster County in September. It was September, and those three massive sycamore trees, one of them is gone. Those three massive sycamore trees around the parsonage started to drop their leaves soon after we got here. Well, I went and bought a rake and started raking up those leaves. There was nothing to do with them except I found in the, the Parsons garage old metal garbage cans. So I took the leaves and I pushed them, piled them down into the metal garbage cans and I picked them up and I carried them from the Parsonage to the, dump, the brush pile in the back of the uh, church property. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times I'd pick these cans up and carry them back and dump them out, go fill them again over and over and over again. About the ninth time, you know, the little metal handle starts wearing a, hand, wearing a trail in your hand as you carry them back. But the next year, fall came, and I went and bought a wheelbarrow. <laughs> wheelbarrow. Where, where had the wheelbarrow been my whole life? Uh, it, uh, it, it was the capacity of the wheelbarrow was not a whole lot bigger than the garbage cans, but still I dumped them in and I, I wheel it back. Oh, that was so much easier. Uh, up that incline a, a little bit and, and throw those leaves in the pile. That was, it was great. And a couple years later, uh, Dave and Sandy Miller uh, gave the church a trailer. A trailer. A trailer that I could hook up to that farm all tractor. <laughs> And, and you could put five or six garbage cans worth of leaves, wheelbarrowfuls worth of leaves, uh, on this, this, tra- this trailer. And I'd hop in the driver's seat and drive it back and sweep those leaves into the brush pile. Oh, it's a trailer. This is so great to take care of these leaves. Uh-huh. You and I, brothers and sisters, are supposed to read Acts 2 and we're supposed to say, Oh, look, it's the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised and he sent him for us to to be our great burden bearer, to help us, to enable us to carry the load. Oh, may may he be at work more and more in our church so that we can be part of the Lord's mission of turning the world upside down for the name of Jesus. And may he unite us together together with increasing joy and fruitfulness as we teach and admonish one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, great God, we come before you today and we are so thankful to you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling within us to do these great things. 
Father, this morning, I, I know that there are men and women and teenagers in our congregation who are discouraged at the tasks that lie before them and the responsibilities that they have. Would you remind them, according to your goodness, that, that you have given us the Spirit? Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. You have not left us alone. You have sent us your Spirit who enables us to admonish and testify and encourage and persevere. How we thank you for this, this miraculous gift, this great gift, the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray and ask that he would be at work more and more and more in our church, that Christ's renown would be well known in our community, in our county, because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our church. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you for giving us your spirit. We long for the day that we'll see your face again. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.